We hope you are enjoying our expanded podcast schedule. For the month of July, we have something new for our members. Each month, members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of July, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code fireworks at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code fireworks. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, It's the beginning of the week, so this is Spy Show. I'm uh, your co-host, David Rothkopf. I'm here in Washington, D.C., finally, after nightmarish travels across Europe. Uh, And I am glad to be joined by my uh, regular Spy Show co-host, Mark Polymeropoulos. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing great. Red Sox won. They uh, took the series from the Mets, and they're two games behind in the wild card. And they are tied for last place with your New York Yankees. So take that as a as a good start to the week. Let's go. Well, I, yeah, start with a start with taking a swipe at me. That's okay. I I can <laughs> handle that. Uh, we are very happy to be joined today by Alma Katsu. Uh, during her over thirty year long career in intelligence, Ms. Katsu worked at the CIA and the NSA both as an intelligence analyst and in research and technology before working as a senior technology policy analyst at Rand. That sounds cool, but. It's even cooler that she's written a bunch of great uh, novels. Uh, Hopefully, we will talk about uh, uh, those that draw on her experience. But I want to start with a question for both of you, uh, because I like to start uh, uh, jumping off of the news. Um, uh, And there may not be a lengthy answer to this, but I think it's an interesting development. the past couple of days, uh, the president of the United States has decided to elevate Bill Burns to be a member of the cabinet. Bill Burns, of course, is director of central intelligence. Um, uh, this is due, no doubt, in, in, in large part to the fact that Bill Burns is extraordinary, an amazing public servant, uh, one of our most distinguished diplomats during his career at the State Department, to which during which he rose to be deputy secretary of state. But um, it also is an interesting uh, comment on the structure of the intelligence community. I personally was not a huge fan of um, uh, the establishment of the Director of National Intelligence, since the goal of the Director of National Intelligence was actually exactly the same as the goal of the Director uh, of the establishment of the Central Intelligence Agency in 1947. And it was kind of the old U.S. government thing, like, well, if we didn't get that right, let's say it again and louder and add a layer of bureaucracy. Um, but 
now we have both um, the DNI and the DCI on the U.S. cabinet. I'm just wondering what you think of all that. Let me start with you, Alma, as you are our guest. Well, that's a really uh, interesting development. Um, I'm not a historian, so one of you guys can correct me, but haven't CIA directors been on the cabinet at some points in the past? So, I mean, personally, I think he was elevated probably because um, Burns just has such a breadth of experience, um, you know, in government. His time at State Department, I think, really makes him a good asset to have on the cabinet. You know, he can take a more, he can represent more than just the intelligence community's view in a way. You know, he's, it's nuanced with what the, the diplomatic possibilities um, are as well. Uh, thanks, Mark. Do you, do you have a view on this? Yeah, so so it's interesting because President Biden uh, initially did not have Bill Burns as the CIA chief in the cabinet. Now, uh, under President Trump, both uh, uh, Mike Pompeo and Gina Haspel were. Um, this has been done before. Uh, but I think it, it really, without diving too deep into why this actually matters, because I'm not quite sure the cabinet actually does all that much, except meet occasionally for photo ops. Um, so it is, in a sense, symbolic. But I think really what it shows is that Burns is really an extraordinary member of the national security team. You know, he is clearly, uh, uh, you know, admired by allies. Um, he's feared uh, uh, and respected by our adversaries. He's used in this kind of not this this mode of of intelligence diplomacy, where he goes and he talks to Vladimir Putin and Mohammed bin Salman and uh, uh, and others, and so he's certainly used in this you know, quasi diplomatic role. Um, uh, and, but most importantly, he's got something that is uh, uh, almost. Uh, uh, or it's very hard um, to, to replicate. He is the ear of the president. Um, you know, from everything I am told, he is, uh, even before this move, one of the most important national security uh, advisors for President Biden. So it's interesting. Look, I think it's going to work. You know, he, he gets along with Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence. But it really ultimately, in my sense, is a reflection of, of Burns as um, really one of uh, our generation's, you know, most important national security figures. I, I can't see how it's a bad thing. It's only a good thing. And, uh, 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 you know, and most importantly, just from my very narrow kind of parochial view, I hope he stays as CI director. Well, we shall, we, we shall see about that. Certainly, uh, should there be a second term, there will be some shuffling around. Uh, but I think another thing that it does, uh, which just struck me as listening to both of you is, uh, it sends a message to the people with whom Burns meets internationally. And he is playing in a very unusual diplomatic role. Um, and uh, it's a bit akin to the fact that when they made Ching Gong the foreign minister of China, um, they, they, they subsequently made him also a state counselor. And it sent a message that he was at a certain level. Uh, and that's important. Of course, Ching Gong has not been seen in the past four say, weeks. Right? So maybe that's not the best example. Um, anyway, uh, Mark. Uh, uh, it was your very good idea to invite Alma to join us. So perhaps you want to offer a bit of a precy to that, and then maybe a question. Sure. This is a, it's a it's a great honor to have Alma uh, on today. I was uh, you know in kind of in our in our green room before I was I was telling her that when you know we went to a a book event or a or a, actually it was a celebration of a local bookstore, an independent bookstore called Bar, called Bard's Alley in Vienna, Virginia, and Alma was there, and she was there. Was, she was getting swarmed by. Um, uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of her fans and my daughter, who's in it was in college at the time, um, looks at me and she's like, "Oh, that book, The Hunger by by Alma." He goes, "She said I- I've read that," and I said, "Really?" 
And then I went back and I looked on Amazon and she had 5,000 reviews. And so, you know, we're going to talk quite a bit uh, about, you know, some intelligence community topics. But, um, you know, really the, the part of Alma's second career uh, as, as an author is, is absolutely remarkable. Um, and, you know, everyone has kind of this life journey. And, and boy, if all of us could, you know, go from, from one phase to another as successfully as you have, Alma, uh, uh, it, it's something certainly to strive for. Let's Let's jump in just in terms of kind of the first question, um, uh, and you know we don't, we're gonna we're gonna kind of not get too controversial right off the bat, but you know your spy series uh, uh, that you've written was always kind of female centric. There was a lot of female characters that were really important, um, f- female adversaries as well. Uh, you know, first of all, you know why did you feel that this was important? Um, and let's then jump in to, to perhaps that has something to do with your role as a. Uh, you know, a senior female uh, uh, in, in two organizations, CIA and, and NSA, that haven't had kind of the greatest um, track records um, with uh, with females and minorities. So, uh, uh, kind of let's 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 get get kind of controversial right away. Give us your okay. views on this. <laughs> well, thank you, Mark. Um, you know, it's been a funny career, and I'm sure we'll get into all of that. People who knew me in intelligence are surprised to find out that I write novels, and people who know me as a novelist are surprised to find out that I had a career in intelligence. I guess the two don't go together that much that often when you write outside of just spy novels. But um, I got the opportunity to write the spy novels when I retired. I'd actually been published for almost 10 years at that point, a little under 10 years, writing a variety of um, fiction. It's almost always historical with some kind of supernatural element to it or horror element to it. You can imagine how popular that would be at CIA. I mean, people just could not believe when I sold my first book, they thought it was a scholarly book on peacekeeping, which was pretty much my field at the time. And I had to say, no, it's a fantasy book full of magic. And and then I'd got the funny books. But um, the reason I went into publishing probably has a little bit to do with some of the things you hinted at um, with my intelligence career. As wonderful as it was, and I'm sure everyone who works in intelligence has had, you know, broad, interesting experiences, you know, I often felt it was a bit limited because of my gender and I really didn't bring my ethnic background into it until afterwards. I kind of had my eyes opened a little bit that maybe it had been a little limited, even with the wonderful things I was allowed to do and the opportunities I was given. And so I really wanted to see in my publishing career how successful I could be. And while some of those same limitations exist in publishing, they exist everywhere in the world, right? I've still managed to get probably a little bit farther than I thought I ever would with the books. But the um, spy series, when my editor at Putnam came to me and said, you know, you're just retired. I know you've always wanted to write a spy novel. Do you want to give it a try? I said, yes. You know, I'm sure we all have in our heads, those of us who've been in the business, when we look at movies and television and even other novels and we see the things that make no sense. Um, and the way that we're represented, we think, oh, I'm going to set the record right. If I ever get the chance, I'm going to write, you know, a true to life spy novel. But I've been in publishing for a long time and I realized that wasn't possible. So I just had this compromise, but I absolutely wanted it to be about women because especially in publishing today, it, you know, spy thrillers are very much a male dominated field, both in terms of the writers and in terms of the characters. They're always, almost always male focused. The ones that are female focused, you know, don't survive very long. There's, there's been a few. 
But uh, the ones that are popular, for some reason, are these World War II historicals that look at famous, you know, women who were able to, you know, work in the field and that sort of thing. But the thing is, is that for modern women in intelligence, that's not a very satisfactory portrayal. I mean, we do, of course, admire the heroes who went before us, the women who made it possible. But they were treated, you know, it's an anachronistic time. They were treated as talking dogs almost. You know what I mean? Like you had to be super, super special to be allowed to do this job. And then when the war was over, of course, they, most of them were kicked out. So, I, you know, I wanted to show that it's different for women today in intelligence. And I also kind of wanted to show how it's different for us. And that's been a little trickier to do. Um. Well, I mean, I'm tempted to ask, you know, what was it in your experience at the CIA and the NSA that leads you to write about magic and, and the supernatural? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> Escapism? Um, you know, it was when I started, uh, I came back to writing. Actually, I had been, um, my goal when I was young was to be a novelist. But, you know, this was a long time ago, pre-internet. I didn't know any novelists. You know, I had no path to success. So um, I I went into journalism and I was, even when I was in college, I was a stringer and, um, and I thought that would be my way in. Uh, and eventually, you know, I started writing short stories and that sort of thing, but I got the opportunity to work at NSA. I actually spent two thirds of my career with NSA. So that's, and probably the more formative years were at NSA. So I gave it up, you know, they kind of forced your hand back then. And so I stopped writing for newspapers. I gave up fiction and it wasn't until I turned 40 that I decided to return to it, because at that point I was um, a SIGINT National Intelligence Officer, and I knew how hard you had to work to be at the top of your field. And I knew in my heart I hadn't done that with writing fiction. I was in my 20s when I gave it up. So I thought, I'm going to go back and I'm going to see if I can master, if I can write a book with no thought to being published. Well, that book took 10 years. <laughs> To get to the point where it was saleable. So I sold my first book at 50. But, you know, when you start out, you write the kinds of things that you enjoy reading. And, it, you know, actually my fiction read it, reading had been sort of frozen in time for a while. But back when I wrote fiction, I really enjoyed speculative fiction, you know, fantasy to a degree, you know, more on the horror side of things. Um, and so that's what I went to when I returned. So not just write about what you know, but write about what you like. Yes, because <laughs> you're going to spend a long time with it. You better like it. That, no, no question about that. Mark, do you want to pick up from there? Yes, yeah, so just along the lines of, of kind of your that, that second career, um, again, being as uh, as or more impressive even than your, than your first career, you know, one of the things that, and, and I'm going to project a little bit for myself, one of the things that I, that I have seen as I've kind of moved on after you know 26 years in the intelligence community, so I go off and of course I'm, you know, working with David on this podcast here. I'm on Morning Joe quite a bit, but I have something that's called I have constantly have something that's called imposter syndrome, meaning you know what the hell am I doing? You know I was I was in the shadows for a long time, and all of a sudden you're on a podcast, you're on television. There's a million people um, watching it, and and you know I, I find myself. Uh, kind of battling this. And, and as I've gone and I've talked about this with others, other super successful um, uh, you know, folks uh, like yourself, Alma, I also get a sense that that's not uncommon. So have, did you ever have that sense of, you know, as you're, as you're, if, there, you're, if you're on a book tour, if you're doing a book signing and there's hundreds of people there, you're saying to yourself, I can't believe this is happening or, you know, or, or, you know, or, or 
or you know, do, does everyone really actually like me? I mean, I've really battled this. So, your thoughts? Well, I do say that quite a bit, but for me, I think it's more realistic maybe than you because. You know, there's not huge audiences for books unless you're the Fifty Shades of Grey that, you know, is just this curiosity piece that everybody's talking about. So everyone runs out to buy a copy. Audiences for books are so much smaller. You know, and I've been doing this for a long time. I think I'm in my 13th year or something in publishing. And I know my numbers aren't big. I had one book that was, by most measures, a big success, and that was The Hunger. Um, It's sold in the U.S. over 100,000 copies. And that's small compared to when you hear about big bestseller numbers. Um, And my first book was a bit of a success too, The Taker. But but I know what my numbers are, right? And um, I've never made the New York Times bestseller list, which is sort of the measurement for the book publishing industry. And so, yes, I do have imposter syndrome because lately I've been invited to be, you know, the guest of honor at this thing and that thing. And um, even internationally. And I feel like, do these people really not know who I am? I'm just this little, this little author with her little following, you know, but I do. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. I do feel that way when people say, oh, you're, you know, you're such a, a famous author. I'm not famous, but I do work very hard uh, at my books, as you know, right? In intelligence, most of us work very hard at everything we do. So I pour that same intensity and, um, you know, pride in turning out a really good product in my book. So in that respect, I don't have imposter syndrome about being a writer. I have maybe imposter syndrome about being a popular writer. (laughs) Well, you know, Mark, I I once wrote actually a little bit about this in one of my books because I had a conversation with Madeleine Albright. And Madeleine Albright said, everybody has imposter syndrome. Everybody comes into these cabinet meetings and they look around and they're like, what am I doing here? I'm just the person that I was in high school. And I'm, you know, I'm in this room full of, um, and it's, it's a, it is a really sort of stunning and humbling and, and a bit terrifying moment when you realize that government is not populated by people carved out of marble walking around in togas, but the jerks you went to high school with. And, and, you know, it's, it's like, oh my God, um, they're in charge now. But, uh, uh, so, you know, in, in some respects, imposter syndrome is, 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 is helpful. You know, I'm listening to your story. I've, I can relate, right? I wrote my first, you know, real book. I wrote, you know, a bunch of articles and, and, and monographs and things before, but I wrote my first real book when I was, 50. I've written yeah. 10 books since then. Um, wow. all non, all nonfiction so far. But, um, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the process of writing each time is, a is kind of to me, of course, it was, it's like a master's degree in something. You know, I mean, I go in and I, some of it's history, some of it's not. And I have a couple questions that uh, come out of it. But one of them comes out of this this last book, Red London, um, which is uh, a sequel to another book you wrote called Red Widow, and it talks about the Russians in 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 London. Sometimes when I've been in London recently, I felt that it was all Russians in London. There weren't any. There weren't. You know, you go to sort of South Kensington, and that's all you that's all you run into. And it's you know, it strikes me as a, a you know great. Um, framing for a book but as i was reading about it and reading about uh your your preparation of the book there was another thing that 
rang re- resonated with me from past experience, and that is, you wrote a book about Russia and Russia's role in the world, and after you finished it, Russia invaded Ukraine, and you 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 had to go back and go, oh, okay, well, that, and I was just I just thought that was it was you know would be interesting for people to understand how that changed the book and how it changed you as somebody who's sort of studied this kind of thing professionally as well, your view of, of, of Russia, what, of what are Russian spies are doing now compared to what they may have been doing. Well, uh, yes, you nailed it. I had just turned in the manuscript and then uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And I was like, Oh, that's not good. (laughs) And every (laughs) spy writer I knew was in the same conundrum though. We were all, you know, had our eyes on Russia and were projecting that something like this was going to happen. And now it was overtaken by events. So my editor who was looking through the manuscript at the time said, yeah, you're going to have to change that because it's, even though it's fiction and you could just say, this is a fictional world that, you know, and, and, and these are the things that happen in it. It's going to be unsatisfying for readers. So I went back and, you know, I changed some things and I handed it back in. And then, as we all know, the events on the ground when Russia first invaded Ukraine moved very, very quickly. One of the things I had done in my career was I was in a lot of war rooms, <laughs> a lot of war rooms. I supported a lot of multinational um, coalitions, peacekeeping operations, that kind of stuff. There was a span of several years where I was always in a war room, right? We were going to a war tempo. So I knew this was very, very bad. And I was going to be rewriting this book over and over again if I didn't get ahead of the action. But that's kind of a tough thing to do, to project, you know, what's going to happen in six months, eight months, what what kind of end game is here, because you're afraid you're going to end up in the same thing. So I thought, what's the one thing that everyone would like to see? At that moment, it was, we just want Putin to go away. If he went away, all this would 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 be over. And I thought, okay, I'm going to give them what they want. Putin's going to go away. But what if the cure is worse than the disease? Because that's probably what we're looking at if somebody is wily enough and strong enough and audacious enough to take him out. So that was a miracle. That really freed me up, you know, took me away from day-to-day events. I had friends who were writing me. They were still struggling with day-to-day events as they were trying to get their manuscript put in. So, um, yeah, that was quite an experience. But the other thing is I'm not a Russian expert, and I say this all the time uh, because, of course, now it's all Russia all the time. And I picked Russia because it's it seems to be one of the few adversaries the U.S. has that reading audiences really enjoy. It's kind of evergreen, right? But my background is more in... Um, you know, civil wars and that sort of thing. I spent a lot of time working targets that were in Africa, for instance. And while these are fascinating subjects for novels, you know, publishers are not as keen because they they fear that there won't be reader interest there. So uh, now we have this happy convergence of Russia being on the front page of the newspapers and being something that Americans will pay attention to. And so that didn't lead you to predict that the guy who was going to try to take out Putin would be his caterer? you you cannot you cannot write a story about that right they would say no this is too unbelievable um life is truly stranger than fiction yeah true and and i i noticed that bill burns was making jokes about that so was blinken at and at at aspen last week um mark over to you 
<laughs> sure. So first of all, Alma, when you say that you sold a hundred thousand copies, those of us who have written books and have not sold a hundred thousand copies would would uh, certainly wish for that. I think that's a that's a tremendous um, uh, accomplishment. And also, you know, there's there's something to be said with the conversation on imposter syndrome, just with all of us having that just air of authenticity. Uh, you know, you know, you can be in the public eye um, uh, quite a bit, but everyone is, you know, a, a human being who has, uh, uh, you know, certainly um, every once in a while would question, you know, what am I doing here? Even though you're doing a, you know, a great service in, in you know, providing commentary or, or writing books. With that, though, one piece that um, I think uh, many people may not understand because you do this uh, as certainly as a consultant to, to government and the private industry is your role as a, um, a technology uh, kind of guru as someone as a futurist almost, and you know every time I I, I go around um, the United States, whether it's talking at universities or you know talking on Morning Joe, I'm always asked about artificial intelligence and what is the role of AI, the effect of AI, um, not only in terms of you know uh, uh, our country as a whole, but particularly the intelligence community. Can you comment on that? You know how is the IC going to grasp something like uh, AI, both for good, but also as we see our adversaries uh, adopting uh, and, and almost leading in, 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 in the artificial intelligence realm. Well, boy, you've hit on a lot of subjects um, about the future of AI and, you know, what's making it so predictable. I mean, uh, sorry, hard to predict. And, um, you know, what we see, this is probably the most hyped technology, emerging technology I've seen in my 13 years or so of following this field. And that makes it even harder to figure out where the truth lies. And part of the issue too, is that for most people, if they don't know the technology, when they think of AI, they're thinking of what, what's known as generalized AI, which is, you know, what you see in science fiction movies, the AI that thinks like a human, acts like a human, talks like a human, reasons like a human. And we are nowhere near that. What we are looking at today is, um, is a part of artificial intelligence work, and that's what's known as gen um, generative AI. It used to be known as generative um, adversarial AI, and that was uh, it's in the field of natural language processing (NLP). So, dealing with language as in text and prose, as opposed to images and video. It's, you process them slightly different ways. So um, with generative AI, what you have are two AI systems that are basically combating each other. One does something, the other one analyzes it, prosecutes it, changes it, then that bounces back. If you, you can think of it as it's trying to make what the outcome is better, but it does that in an adversarial way. What the breakthrough was a few years ago was that researchers starting to started to use these extremely large language models, LLMs, billions, maybe trillions at this point of inputs. And um, in order to train the models, they were finding that bigger data sets made the completely machine generated training better. You know, in the past, you'd have to have a human step in every time the system broke you know, came up against a rule and the facts weren't supporting it. So, but now it's the machines training themselves. So they can, we have this model now where they can do it very well. I won't say super quickly, but more quickly than has done in the past. It's tremendously expensive for the companies that are doing these large models. So it's not like something that 
anybody can do. Hold that thought because I'll get back to it. So it's very rapidly um, evolving. There are very few handrails on the system. You know, tech big tech firms have really succeeded in um, what's the word I'm looking for? Intimidating the government from providing useful oversight and regulation on, on a lot of these technologies. So it's it's a little difficult to say because it's also so much in the tech field where the government does not is not providing funding, does not have oversight. You know, we're a little bit at their mercy at this point. Um, and now there's also because it's moving so fast, there's new development. So there's a new type of LLM, which is based on open source software, meaning it's much more easily gotten at. And they're training it on smaller domain-specific data sets, which makes it more useful to look at specific problems and specific problems in domains that we probably would be a little bit more nervous about. So when you think of chat GPT today, people are using it to rewrite their resume or, you know, come up with hobby things. It's being used for these sort of, you know, low stakes um, things where if you make a mistake or you're sowing disinformation, you know, it, it's not as terrible as if, you know, you're using it to design a new nuclear program or something like that. So all this to say that, you know, it's a very quickly moving stream, really hard to kind of come up with the bottom line uh, 10 years out, but we're definitely in an area where we need more regulation, especially since it's smashing up against the whole disinformation problem. It is, uh, these models are incredibly good at spewing out disinformation and we still don't really have the tools in place to be able to t detect when it's been generated by an LLM or not. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's very uncertain times. Yeah, no doubt. And I'd like to come back with a question on that, but uh, this is the point where we take a break and we say thanks to everybody who's not a member, who's been listening, and uh, say if you were a member, you'd be able to listen to the rest of the broadcast. Uh, so go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership, and for $5 a month, you get to listen to all of our shows, now nine a week, I think going to 10 shows a week. Um, and uh, um, uh, that'll be a new one coming in September. Uh, and um, uh, we encourage you to do that because – very often the the last bit, the last third of the show is full of uh, interesting uh, information and discussion, as I'm sure will be the case here. For now, bye-bye to those of you who are non-members. And if you're a member, stand by. <laughs> 